Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 26, 26 to 30, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Lord's Supper. What Jesus did during the last Passover meal, well, that's powerfully impacted the lives of millions of people through the generations that have lived after that event. I mean, prior to that one moment, Passover was a celebration of Israel, along with a few others who had heard the story of the Exodus from Egypt. But for the vast majority of the earth, the Passover had no relevance. And that's not to say it should have been that way, but it's a fact that all the nations around Israel at the time of Jesus, from the Greeks to the Romans, to those in Pontus and Asia and Libya and Cyrene, from Europe to Africa, all the way to India and beyond, no one celebrated Passover. The world as a whole had never heard. Israel was just another nation to them in a world of nations. But then on one night, Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples, and after he did, What Jesus did that night has been repeated by people from nations and racial groups throughout the world. Indeed, that night has transformed from Passover to the Lord's Supper. It's the mainstay in church after church so that many, including myself, are going to argue that our Lord left us with two institutions, something that are either called sacraments or ordinances. The first was baptism, which is the initiation into the Christian life. And the second is the Lord's Supper, which is a symbol of our ongoing covenant with God in Christ. In a very real way, many have spoken, if if they speak about it rightly, as symbolically feeding on the body and blood of our Lord, counting themselves as a part of the living Christ. Now, I, I have to admit at the outset, The way in which many of us celebrate it today, well, it really does look very different from the way that Jesus celebrated that meal with his disciples on that night. And I'll explain that as we go along, but the fact remains that the words of Jesus are often repeated at every celebration of the Lord's table. And furthermore, as Jesus held up the bread and then later the cup, we still do that today, expressing our solidarity with Christ and counting ourselves in the covenant that he laid down that night. So let's begin by reading Matthew's very brief description of that event. And I'm reading Matthew 26, 26 to 30. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. See, our text begins with the words, Now as they were eating. The fourteenth day of the Jewish month of Nisan had arrived. And on that night, all Jewish households would meet. They would recount the exodus from Egypt. And they'd make sure that questions were asked about why this night was different from all other nights. This was the night that God had visited Egypt and killed every firstborn, but had passed over the houses of those who had the blood of lambs smeared upon the door frames of their houses. This was the night that Israel had been brought out of bondage and were set upon the path to the promised land. This was the night of redemption. 
And redemption is a word that comes from the world of slavery. A price has been paid, and now the slave is no longer bound to the hand of the oppressor. This is the night to celebrate freedom from bondage. Indeed, this is why this night is different from all other nights. But Jesus knew the story of the Passover was but a dress rehearsal to a much greater story. This night indeed was different from all other nights. This would be the night when Jesus was betrayed and led to a merciless cross. This night would be the night of redemption, but redemption from a slavery much greater than the one Israel experienced. No, Jesus would redeem a great company of people from every tribe and race and language and tongue, not from Egypt, but from Satan and from this evil world and from the destructive power of the flesh and from bondage to sin itself resulting in death. This is the enslavement that has held the entire human race. These are the bonds that hold all men and women fast. And there is no deliverance until that one night, a night different from all other nights. And they had begun to eat. Earlier during that afternoon, the lamb had been purchased that had been killed in the forecourt of the temple. And so they had the lamb for the meal, but they had also purchased unleavened bread and bitter herbs as well as wine along with other items. And now the meal had begun. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, which would have been a piece of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread was called the bread of haste. For when God delivered his people from bondage, the deliverance came suddenly. Israel didn't even have enough time to allow the bread to rise. They needed food for energy out of Egypt, but the deliverance came quickly. That's to say, when Israel was freed from slavery, it didn't come about because, you know, of a long series of negotiations or through a gradual relaxation of laws regarding slavery. No, no, it came because of the mighty power of God. That was unmistakable. And the bread they ate was a symbol of God's sudden mighty power to save. And our text says that Jesus first blessed it. And we might understand that to mean that Jesus gave thanks to God for the bread or as we might today pray as we do before a meal. But this blessing was almost certainly the traditional Jewish words that would have been used at this point in the meal. Jesus would have said, Blessed be you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. You know, up till now, the meal is progressing in the way in which all Passover meals progress. And Matthew, who writes this book to a largely Jewish audience, doesn't have to give us all the words that Jesus spoke because his readers knew those words. And then as the unleavened bread was given to his disciples, Jesus now adds words no one's ever heard at the Passover. Take, eat, this is my body. And well, I want to stop here and address how these words meant to bring all true followers of Jesus together have sometimes been used to now divide the church. You know, in time, the Roman church would begin to teach a doctrine called transubstantiation. And the idea here is not that the bread symbolizes Christ's body, but the bread is actually the body of Christ. And from that, a theology was developed which stated that in the celebration of the Catholic Mass, an actual sacrifice of Jesus goes on, and that whenever the worshiper eats the bread, that worshiper is literally eating Jesus. Well, many of you also know that it was Martin Luther, the great reformer, but he found himself unable to completely distance himself from that theology. 
And so Luther founded a new doctrine. It was called consubstantiation. And the view here is that although the bread and the wine remain exactly what they are, they are, however, infused by a real presence of Christ so that participation in the Lord's table is indeed a real participation in the Christ who inhabits those elements. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that that view of things fails to come to terms with what actually happened on that Passover night. You see, when Jesus said, this bread is my body, no one in the room with him ever imagined that the bread was an extension of his body so that they couldn't see where his fingers ended and where the bread began or that the bread each disciple had in front of him literally became the body of Christ. See, that would have been foolish. And neither did Jesus say, this bread is infused with my presence. Why in the world would he say that? Because his presence was literally in the room with them. Listen, everyone there understood exactly what he meant. This bread is a symbol of my body. That is, in the same way as we break this bread, so my body will be broken. That, of course, means my body will be killed. And as you eat this bread so that it gives you life and strength, so also in the future you're going to spiritually feed on me, meaning you're going to trust in me and my sacrifice for your spiritual life. And Jesus makes it unmistakably clear. He's going to be violently killed. The bread symbolizes that. He says, take and eat. See, let me see if I can restate that another way. Jesus is saying, I give my body unto death so that you might feed your hungry and starving souls. What a moment it must have been. I can only imagine the looks of the disciples around the table. Next, he took the cup. And those who have studied the Passover celebration of ancient Israel point out there were actually four different cups that were drunk. Each of the four cups of wine were drunk at a different time in the meal, and they would have been premised on the promises found in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. The first cup was the cup of sanctification and holiness. When that was drunk, Jesus would have said, I will bring you up from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And then they would drink. Second would come the cup of deliverance, and then they would repeat the words, I will rescue you from bondage. And then the third cup is the cup of redemption. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And it was precisely at that moment that Jesus broke in and said, this cup is the blood of my covenant. Few verses encapsulate the message of the gospel better than John 3.16. It's been memorized, put on posters, painted at the front of churches, and even waved from end zones at football games. But perhaps you've never heard an exposition of this great verse as in-depth as the one Dr. John offers in his new five-message series, John 3.16. With two hours of audio dedicated to unpacking exactly what each component of this verse means for the believer, I think this series may just completely enhance and renew your appreciation for the depth of truth found in this verse. To that end, Back to the Bible Canada is offering the John 3.16 series on CD for free during the month of March. So take advantage of this limited time offer and call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your free CD series today.
It's clear that, and that night, Jesus made an announcement. He's proclaiming a new covenant. Indeed, the Bible records this meal not just once, but on four occasions. Mark records that meal for us in Mark chapter 14, 22 to 25. And just like Matthew, Mark records Jesus calling this the blood of the covenant. Luke also records this meal in Luke 22, 14 to 23. And Luke adds that Jesus called it the new covenant in his blood. And finally, Paul includes it in an extensive teaching of how the church of today is to practice the Lord's Supper. And that's found in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. But Paul also mentions, as Luke did, that Jesus included the words new covenant. See, there can be no doubt that Jesus established a covenant on that night. Now, if the language of covenant is unfamiliar to you, let me explain. A covenant is is a binding agreement. It's like a contract as we might think of them today when two parties sign a legal agreement that binds them to a given action. But a covenant is different. See, unlike a contract, it's immoral to break a covenant. Unlike a contract, a covenant is relational. It's based on the willingness to bless the other. And unlike a contract, all biblical covenants are agreements that God makes with people. And the Bible contains a series of covenants. I mean, think of the covenant that God made with Noah. I will never destroy the human race again. And then the covenant is sealed with a sign. God puts a rainbow in the sky. And the next covenant is found in Genesis 15, the covenant God made with Abraham. His people will be like the sand on the seashore. The whole world will be blessed through Abraham. And Abraham cuts animals in half, and God appears and walks between the cut animals. That's the sign of that covenant. The next covenant is at Mount Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And it's a promise that God makes that his people will be holy. The sign of the covenant, that will be the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Then God makes a covenant with David, that David's throne will rule the entire earth. The sign of that covenant is the established throne of David. And I hope you notice something. In each covenant, God makes a promise, a promise to do good to his people. In each covenant, God binds himself to his promise. That is, heaven and earth are going to pass away, but God's promise will never fail. And finally, in each covenant, God gives a sign or a visible representation, something that we can look at, something that reminds us that God made that promise to us. And now here's Jesus. I'm making a new covenant, the final, the ultimate covenant with my people. This covenant is in my blood. In the First Testament, Israel was frequently told that the life of a creature is in its blood. So Jesus' blood is his life that's poured out. In fact, Matthew 26, verse 28, Jesus holds the sign of the covenant, that's the Passover cup, the cup of redemption, the cup of freedom from sin. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant. He's echoing the words of Exodus 24, verse 8, and the phrase, the blood of the covenant. But by using the words, the blood of the covenant poured out, he's also echoing the words of Isaiah 53, verse 12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. See, Jesus is making it clear that the new covenant is the offering of himself unto death. And behind that is the clear and unmistakable truth that his death is not only an offering, it's a substitutionary offering. 
Isaiah 53 verse 10 says that his soul makes an offering for guilt. And Matthew is recounting Jesus' words on that night. And Jesus said his blood is the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's substitutionary language. Look, Jesus will be violently killed. His blood is going to be spilled out like the Old Testament sacrifices. And through this sacrificial offering of himself, many will receive forgiveness. And this is what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's table today. It's not something magical as if, you know, Jesus enters into the bread and the cup. He doesn't. But it's the divinely ordained sign of the covenant that God has made with his people. When we eat and drink, we remember something we must never forget. Christ was slain. Christ was nailed to the cross. He suffered the wrath of man, but suffered more under the wrath of God. And it's an acceptable offering to God so that through this one sacrifice, anyone who looks to him in faith would receive forgiveness of sins and to be reconciled to the Father. Hallelujah. Jeremiah the prophet predicted this. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then in verse 34, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. See, Jesus is completely conscious of the fact that he is going to go to the cross. He's also conscious that he is the new Passover. He's the deliverance from the ultimate bondage, the redemption price that was paid for the freedom from sin and damnation. He's aware that he is the offering laid on the altar of God. He knows this is the time the long-awaited new covenant is being brought forth, the greatest binding agreement God has ever made with man to forgive our iniquity and to remember our sins no more. And forever after that, Passover is transformed into the Lord's Supper. For that's what Passover was looking forward to. But we might still ask, how did the Passover get transformed into the worship experience of the church? Well, certainly in Matthew's recounting of the event, no word is said about what should happen to this Lord's Supper in the future. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, recounts other words that Jesus said on that night. So in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, Paul tells us that Jesus said, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the death of our Lord, and it's a proclamation that through faith in his death on our behalf, our debt is paid, and we're freed from the judgment that comes because of our sins. But Jesus said, as often as you do this. Notice, Jesus didn't specify how often we should do this. You know, I know some churches celebrate the Lord's table every week. And I know some that hold special services three or four times a year. And still others, as in the tradition that I'm most familiar with, we've decided that the Lord's Supper should be celebrated on the first Sunday of every month. But let there be no misunderstanding. This must be done. For no other reason other than this, this is a sign of the covenant that God has made. This is the sign that God has left us, telling us he has bound himself to the promise that was made to us in Jesus. And the wonderful thing about all of this is that we didn't decide to do the Lord's Supper. The Lord decided we should do the Lord's Supper. And whenever we feel our sins or our guilt are pressing in on us, And whenever we feel ourselves unworthy of any grace, 
we come to the Lord's table and the sign is given from on high that God has bound himself to the promise that he made in the death of Jesus to forgive all who come to him in faith. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, nothing. Dear believing Christian, celebrate the Lord's table in your church often. It is, depending on the wording you use, the ordinance of our Lord or the sacrament of our Lord, the means of grace that God has chosen to remind us of the covenant he has made with us. Well, Matthew's still not done. Look now at verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Yeah, of course, Jesus was thinking of his cross, but according to the writer of Hebrews, Jesus endured the cross by looking at the joy that was set before him. Jesus was ever aware that beyond his cruel death, there would come his Father's kingdom. There would be a banqueting room there that would outshine the banquet of that night in the upper room. And that's the thing about celebrating the Lord's Supper in our churches today. Yeah, of course. As often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are reminding ourselves of the death of our Savior and the promise that God has made to us in that death. But we do more than look back. We also look forward to another meal, the meal that has been called the wedding supper of the Lamb. There Jesus will gather all who have repented of their sins and who look to his once and for all sacrifice as their only hope in this world. They will be invited to come and sit and eat with him in the kingdom to come. And here Jesus has defined the entire nature of our faith. We are a people who will never forget the past, the sufferings of our Lord. But we are also a people who look to the future with confidence and hope, knowing that we must not despair. Indeed, we will eat again in the kingdom to come. Thanks, John. You know, I got to ask you the question. Do we find you in this message being at odds with Luther (laughs) when it comes to the Lord's Supper? (laughs) You know, Ben, I am a great fan of Martin Luther. Um, So... Uh, However, I don't think that Luther got everything right. That would be my own feeling on this one. I know that among Christians, there are still some who hold Luther's view of the Lord's table, uh, and they are in the minority. Um, uh, So I I need to say this. Sometimes when believers disagree with one another, we need to come to terms with the fact it's a disagreement between believers. This is not a saving element. And so um, let me say that at the outset. And then let me also say that it seems to me that um, our view of the Lord's Supper ought to be one of remembering and honoring our Lord. We ought not to see it in some way as a magical thing. That, that's my view. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. It's an absolute honor to share that this month, our friends at Laugh Again are celebrating their 10th anniversary. A decade of wisdom-packed stories knit together with family-friendly humor that always directs hearts and eyes back to Jesus. If you haven't already, head over to laughagain.ca and dive into the wide array of resources available, all which provide encouragement in your walk with Jesus. Tune in to Phil's popular Take 5 series or check out resources like Four Minutes for Frazzled Families, a devotional booklet for the whole family. Visit laughagain.ca and when you're there, 
Consider blessing Laugh Again with a financial gift to help pave the way for 10 more years of sharing hope and joy in your walk with Jesus.